My name is Brian Lloyd. I am the movies editor of entertainment.ie. You are listening to the Revisit podcast. On this episode, Mario Rosenstock picks Jaws. Jaws is one of those movies that I never, ever, ever get tired of talking about. There are so many points in it that I feel are so rich and you could talk about them endlessly. And it's not even just like, you know, the Indianapolis speech or the reverse Dolly Zoom. It's all of them. And this is a film just about a shark, a shark that's rampaging a sleepy town in Martha's Vineyard in the 70s. The actors in it, at the time anyway, were not huge, huge, huge stars. Steven Spielberg was was coming off the back of Jewel, he had done Columbo, he was this up-and-coming talent. But the odds were so against Jaws in production that no one could see it. And I think the shock of it certainly carried it a lot of the way. But then after that, how well the script was written, how well it was acted, how tightly made it is. I want to talk about the Indianapolis speech. The way that Robert Shaw does so much with this with just words, with just his performance. And it's so understated. Even that little way his voice just kind of drops when he talks about how they all swarmed in and ripped him to pieces. That choice of the, I'm rip you to pieces. Like, it's so, holy shit. I have never seen an actor put so much weight and so much effort in that one little sigh. And I know I'm really, really zeroing in on this, but I think it is just, it tells so much because it speaks to his character's PTSD. It speaks to how he's just completely numbed by it. When it goes to Roy Scheider's face and when it goes to Richard Dreyfuss's face, you can tell they are just sucked in. And they glance at each other. They're looking at each other and like, holy shit. And I would not be surprised in the slightest if that wasn't in the script and he did that for real. And he was like, holy Christ, look how good the acting is. I mean, there's a reason I'm talking about it this much and there's a reason that it's referenced so much and there's a reason that it has become this iconic scene. And think as well, this is a scene that is over in about three minutes. It's on a rocking boat. It's very minimalist. John Williams' score just kind of creeps in. The choice made here to have just a little, like, as he's describing this horrific, horrific memory. Like, the choices that were made were so pitch perfect. Another big thing about Jaws as well is is that probably doesn't get discussed is the fact that there is a question mark over the Indianapolis speech and who wrote it. The story that I had always known was was that John Milius wrote the Indianapolis speech and then Robert Shaw rewrote it because Robert Shaw was a very accomplished screenwriter. Carl Gottlieb and Peter Benchley were both kind of credited as screenwriters. Peter Benchley wrote the, he wrote the, the source novel and then Carl Gottlieb rewrote parts of it. But there was a man called Howard Sackler who was responsible for breaking the story and actually creating the key scene of Quinn's monologue. Now, Howard Sackler's son, 
his son actually got in touch with me and he was very nice about it. And he was, he said, look, he said, you know, my father wrote that. He went to school with Stanley Kubrick. He was one of the credited writers on Jaws 2 and then kept his name in it. And Spielberg said this. He said that the Indianapolis speech was written by a very little credited writer who made the biggest breakthrough on Jaws. Sackler was a playwright. He said, you must explain why this man has a biblical vengeance against sharks. That was Sackler who did that. And it was Sackler, in fact, who suggested what really became the Rosetta Stone for Quint. And like I said, Daniel Sackler was uh, good enough to get in contact with me and correct me on that. And I'm happy to mention that here. Again, that's one of the one of the reasons why I think Jaws has endured for so long is that there is this rich history in its production. You know, I mean, the whole story about the shark didn't work and they called it Bruce and how the fact that the shark didn't work played into Steven Spielberg's idea of the film and how he was going to create that tension. And my guest for this was Mario Rosenstock. And the first question I asked him about it was, was that Jaws is not a fun... I mean, it has funny moments in it, but it's not an inherently funny film. And we talked about that Mario is clearly a massive film buff like he knows his stuff and he was a really really great guy to talk to about this and you can tell he loved Jaws just as much as I do so our guest for this episode Mario Rosenstock our movie of choice Jaws Jaws, I think, is an interesting choice, and I'll tell you why I think it's an interesting choice for you, is because when I think of Mario Rosenstock, I think of Gift Grub, I think of your comedy show, I think of all that, yet Jaws is, I mean, it has funny moments, but it's not a funny film. Mm. So why? It's not a comedy. No, it's not a comedy at all. But it's a... Well, Jaws is one of my favourite movies, so I was going to choose another movie. I was going to choose... um, a uh, film that I'm watching over and over and over again right now. Um, and uh, it was uh, Barry Lyndon by, St- oh, yeah. by by Stanley Kubrick. And that was made in Ireland in about 1974. Right. And actually, my father was an extra in the film. No way! So I keep looking back through the movie to see, can I find him in it? Right. And I, I sort of, I kind of think I can, but then I, I sort of go, that's not him. He's in a fight scene with the, the British Army and all this sort of stuff. And I absolutely love the movie. Um, um, but I decided to go back to a movie that I loved from when I was starting to enjoy movies and I just came back full circle because I love movies and I love old movies and I love new movies and I love many different types of genres of movies but I just decided to come back to a movie that that made me love movies yeah love movies that gave me the rapture that gave me the the sense of mystery spirit that uh, that religious almost semi-religious feeling you get when you go into a movie so the movie where I had my first religious experience if you like was E.T. yeah and that was the first movie I ever went to into a cinema and that my life changed after that it, not in any particular way that has in- influenced my life I just know that I changed I'd seen something that I'd had an experience that I hadn't had up to that point I was I think I was 11 and this filmmaker who clearly was uh, reaching for something. Um, it was a bit of a gamble uh, on retrospect. Uh, pulled it off. He just pulled off something incredible that reached out to millions and billions of people and moved people. I mean, it's a complete long shot that I think this film worked. Um, E.T. and it did. 
And uh, so I began to become very interested in Spielberg. And then after that, I started going, what other stuff has this guy made? And after that, into my early teens, I watched... Um, Close Encounters. Close Encounters. Yeah. And again, Close Encounters, I found a semi-moving experience. Um, the most the most up-to-date sort of interesting depiction of what it would be like to encounter or to think about the idea of an otherworldly species being out there. and But always through those two periods, just after that period, then there was, there was Jaws, maybe when I was 12. Um, and Jaws was a film that I found I could watch over and over and over again and still find little moments in it where I was marvelling at this this young Tyro, this young genius filmmaker's balls, tenacity and yeah. just sheer genius for telling a story. There's something about him that reminds me of um, Mozart. There's something brazen about him. There's something with utter conviction. There's something with... He has this uh, um, virtuosity, mm. I think it is, that, uh, that, that is, that's magic. It reminds me of Maradona with a ball or Federer with a tennis ball. There's something that he does in film that surprises you every single time, that pulls rabbits out of hats, that messes with you, that has fun, that just makes, whether it's the red girl in Schindler's List um, or whether it's um, the mountain in, in that, that Dreyfus builds in, in Close in, Encounters yeah. or whether it's his uh, incredible virtuosity in, in, in Jaws. There's something incredible about this guy. And I think it's demonstrated brilliantly by his first major Major film, Jewel. Uh, Jaws, Jaws, or Jaws, or Jaws. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Jewel, Jewel um, is kind of similar. I feel I always feel Jewel and Jaws are kind of like you could put them together as a double bill. They are because it's that idea of one man versus this monster, monster. Yeah, That's right. this complete monster. It is, it is, it is. So Jewel um, was made in 1971, and it's featured Dennis Weaver in the uh, main part, and he dry, and he's on the escape from this horrible, dark-looking truck, and the truck just follows him and follows him, and follows him, and tries to kill him, and eventually he um, he defeats the truck, and the truck goes out over the mountain, um, and actually just a little thing that the, the, about Spielberg there. There's a sound. Do you know about the sound? Yeah, it's great. Yeah. It's a great story. So I'll tell it. The um, when the truck goes over the mountain, um, the sound man that's associated with Spielberg makes the sound of this kind of monster. It sounds like a, a kind of a, like a Ray Harryhausen dinosaur going out over a mountain. Going, <laughs> and you sort of go, "Wow, that's a great sound imaging." Yeah, but. Four years later in Jaws, when Roy Scheider blows the shark up with the oxygen Same cylinder, sound. you see the shark d- d- drown underwater and all the bits. And then suddenly you hear the... <laughs> and he used the exact same sound that he used from the truck and jewel. So, yeah, it's a similar movie. It's about man versus monster. But so what I love about what I love about the, 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 the Jaws is that's the storytelling. Mm. The storytelling is is fantastic. It is, um, isn't it? Yeah. And it's. Uh, the reason I picked it probably ultimately to talk to you to, uh, about Brian was in the world of Christopher Nolan there's Steven Spielberg yeah and I kind of go Christopher Nolan is here to save film well he hasn't he's got a long way to go because I think in my way you know I don't know if this guy wants to be an astrophysicist if, she, if he does he should just go back to university and yeah. study astrophysics or just take a project or a module because it's not movie making as far as I'm concerned it's yeah. not really movie making he needs to go back to the palette and just go how do you enthrall an audience and that's what Spielberg does from moment one we all know most people who have any interest in films know the the, subs, 
the, the, the sub-story of Jaws and that is the making of Jaws mm. and how the making of Jaws made it the movie that it become it became. It became so mythic. It became mythic and of course for people who don't know out there the the main story surrounds the fact that the sharks didn't work. They had these robot sharks. They had three robot sharks that did not work and it was the first, Jaws was the first blockbuster to be made in um, kind of basically an open sea situation and they underestimated the elements they underestimated salt water getting into all the machines and basically the shark didn't work the shark they called Bruce which was after a, a big uh, studio executive so it was a satire on them but it didn't work and so Spielberg was three months over time 300% over budget and at one stage the, the studio were going to pull in the production and cancel it and he realised he'd had to shoot most of the movie without the shark. Mm. And of course, this is the Hitchcockian genius of Spielberg, how he managed to invest his directorial power into the performances of the three lead characters, Robert Shaw, uh, Richard Dreyfuss and Roy Scheider. And so that it's in their performances that the danger, fear and monstrous, monstrous nature of the shark is encapsulated. So it's typified by the line that we all know, um, we see Scheider feeding Chump into the water. We see one glimpse of the massive jaws. And he just bolts upright. Right? But you don't hear any noise. You just see this beautiful, beautiful shark come out of the water. This monster, this killing machine. Take the Chump and re- and go underneath. You don't hear anything. And then he just backs into the boat and he goes, we're going to need a bigger boat. You're going to need a bigger boat. And it's in those performances that you realise these guys they're selling it they're selling it they're selling it and it's in Robert Shaw so he tells the story of the USS Indianapolis this mythical 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 well 400 men went in the water and they came out and you know what we got we got the bomb we delivered the bomb I I want to talk about the Indianapolis speech because I think there is so much in that one scene that you can pull so much out of like Mm. there's even even just like the choices that Shaw made in that moment like that bit where he's talking about and then the the way the way his voice just drops when he goes in the yeah, he goes on about um, uh, the shark size. Is it doll's eyes? Yeah, it's like there's so many like choices. Dead, they're lifeless eyes. Yeah, and like I based Daniel O'Donnell on that. I was going to yeah. say because like I think I think of you as a performer who uses your voice so much in doing yeah. radio and stuff like that. You looking at him, I mean, well, I mean, what's your take on that? Like the on. fact that on the fact that Robert Shaw is making so many like you can see that he's constructed like pauses and ifs and buts and kind of breaks in it. I mean, do you think it's that? Do you think he was thinking that hard about it, or do you think that was natural? No, it's natural. It's 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 Steve from uh, one performer it, to another. Yeah, like, what do you think? Like? What I what I what I figure it is, and I, I'd say I'm right. It's Spielberg um, allowing the space between the creating the environment, allowing the space, and allowing the time for the actors to be free enough to do that. Yeah. I understand that, you know, Shaw is a playwright, was a playwright, and I understand that an, another man called John Milius and even Spielberg himself uh, had a little part to play. Oh in, yeah, there's a whole story There's a whole, about, there's yeah, a whole story, story, there's a whole podcast that. in that speech, the USS Indianapolis. Um, but I just think that be Shaw's way with words. It reminds me a bit of um, Rutger Hauer's um, speech in, um, in Blade Runner, mm. where the actor is given the power to emote and, emote do, and do. to almost write it. I mean, mm. Rutger Hauer helped to write that speech in Blade Runner as well, you know, the like tears in the rain. And um, so, uh, yeah, so I think it's, it's, it's a combination of the director allowing the actor space and I think it's the brilliance of the actor. And I mean, Shaw, you know, has, has always been a brilliant actor, was always a brilliant actor. So, um, but just 
the tension yeah. between the characters, you know, I mean, there was rumours that there was rumours that Dreyfus and Shaw didn't get on together and all this sort of stuff. And you could see that in the characters, you know, you could see that in the relationship in the movie and the idea of Scheider being a kind of an outsider and he'd never been in the water. And mm. but yet Robert Shaw was the one which went. I'll never put on a life jacket again. Yeah. I mean, imagine that. that you're, in the, you're in the water with the guy who's, who'll never put on a life jacket again. There's something like kind of fatalist about him, isn't there? Like, it's really yeah, kind of he like... he wants I, to meet the shark. That's it. That's it. It's that real kind of like Captain Ahab, no, Moby Dick kind of thing. No, there is. Yeah, you're right. His life... His, his life turned on that moment in the, in, the, in the USS Indianapolis. And he knows his life always will remind him of that moment. And for his life to end in the mouth of the shark... Is appropriate, yeah. In his fatalistic, in his, in, exactly, yeah. His world. idea that exactly yeah. he has it's, to it's, go. It's out actually and meet still him. terrifying. It is the moment when he is bitten down on by That's the roar shark. Out it's of very him. roar, yeah, and his his blood is pouring from his yeah. mouth, and you hear, you hear this. Oh, it's it's horrible. Yeah, like. and the actual lateral shot of the shark's mouth bearing down on him. It's a brilliant shark. It's brilliant. I still think it's a brilliant shark. I know it, it was flawed. It was a brilliant shark. I, I think you can't, CGI just can't, cannot, cannot compare to the real deal. And Christopher Nolan, fair play to him. He likes doing his real CGI, real effects. But like the stories as well of the, the making of the thing, like Roy and Val, Ron and Valerie Taylor, these two uh, scuba diving um, marine biologists who were shooting in Australia and everything, and they were shooting great whites in Australia, and they used some of the real footage um, of the shark that they shot in Australia, and then they used footage of a short man, uh, a dwarf person, uh, um, to uh, to. Give the sense of perspective. Give the sense of perspective with the shark and all this sort of stuff. And uh, extraordinary, extraordinary ingenuity Mm. um, used in in the film. Um, The the fact then that it was the first blockbuster, really, that it was... It was. It, it became the first movie where we all went. We just ate popcorn and we all went. Let's go to see this movie. This that that's that's exciting as well. And T-shirts were made and the sharks were made and all this sort of stuff. And, and then came Star Wars in '77 and his friend George Lucas. And I'm 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 I'm, I'm intrigued by these guys as well. De Palma, Lucas, Spielberg, yeah, Scorsese, the all, all knowing that, yeah. each other. Yeah. And I'm intrigued by that period of time. That's why I picked Barry Lyndon as well. Yeah. It's from the same period, the 1970s. In my view, unquestionably the greatest period for movie cinema in the history of man that 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 some of these wonderful people were given so much freedom that's it they were given latitude I think. all this freedom yeah I think and they were given such latitude Chinatown and Robert Town yeah. and, and Taxi Driver and Coppola and Kubrick and uh, William Free King and the French Lieutenant's connect or the, the Lieutenant the French connection and mm. and and Bogdanovich and and all these people it's just like but yeah it's funny though you say that like I mean you look at like Chinatown or you look at like any of Peter Bogdanovich's stuff or you look at William Freakin like Jaws almost kind of feels like the antithesis yeah. uh, nowadays it looks like the antithesis yeah. because we think of Jaws as a blockbuster but yeah. back then it wasn't I mean it wasn't a blockbuster in the way we think of it now it was just like a, a cheap thriller yeah. with Roy Scheider Richard Dreyfus, and Robert Shaw and it was about a shark eating people that's it and like in the same way we'd look at like Chinatown being like oh it's about Jack Nicholson and it's set in the 30s and it's about you know water damage mm. in Los Angeles it's only now that we apply that kind of yeah. veneer of oh my god it's fucking Jaws yeah, that kind yeah. of thing Jaws yeah um it's it's maybe it's just I just think it's it's held the test of time. Yeah. It's held the test of time because it's a filmmaker. It's a filmmaker at the top of his powers. Again, um, you look at the, the and then of course the other aspect to it, 
the soundtrack John Williams I mean I've read a little bit about it and it seems that they gave the gig to John Williams and he said I'll see you in six months and Spielberg called up to his house and they had a cup of tea and a glass of wine and Spielberg said so what have you got I'm paying you a lot of money and uh, let's see what you got and John Williams just brought him up to the keyboard and went and Spielberg laughed and went yeah what have you got and he went and he went that's it and he went come on you're taking the piss and he went it's perfect and it is perfect and if you look at the trailers that they used back in 75 it's all John Williams and the deep voice of the voiceover artist or whatever mm. um, so uh, again Williams it's genius it's genius use and of course if you add that to the fluke that the shark didn't work the music replaces the shark it does, doesn't and it? the music the becomes the shark um, so the story behind it the, the oh yeah the, the other thing I remember from it myself is I don't know if he used funny lenses on the cameras but if a lot of the time when you're looking at the sea in Jaws it's very dark isn't it yeah it's black the devil within that lurks within. And I, yeah, I always wonder. Like, I always wondered about that. Was that intentional, or was that just a kind of like a happy coincidence that it looked like there was black oil and like this thing was yeah. coming out of it? Like, like yeah. even the opening scene, like when you see the girl going into the water and stuff like that, and she's like being pulled yeah. below, like that. To me, that that's like the opening of a horror film. Like that's literally like something from like fucking John Carpenter's yeah, Halloween, like where you're just point of view seeing this thing, this victim. It is, but. Again, because it's all dark, you wonder, okay, well, it was in the middle of the night. Was that just intentional? Was yeah. that like, uh, yeah. It, and again, it doesn't really matter whether, you, whether that was intentional yeah. or not because and, the effect is the and, same. And, and we're living in, of course, the time of COVID-19 and there is no character hardly that suits the um, time of COVID-19 but the um, the cameo appearance of Murray Hamilton in the movie, you know. We've got to open this speech. <laughs> you don't understand. we got to open this speech. <laughs> you say Barracuda. <laughs> people say, <laughs> we got to open this speech. You know, there's people's livelihoods here. This is Amity Island. Amity is friendship, you know. I want those kids pulled up by their Buster Browns. And then, of course, there's some, to use the word again, there's some virtuoso tricks yes. used by... Uh, that whole scene where they're on the car and the, on the ferry thing and like yeah. it's, it's all done in one in shot in the background. You don't even notice. Yeah. I had to look for that afterwards. But the famous scene, of course, is... is, is Oh, the, 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 when he sees the guy passes him and he's getting closer and closer. Yeah, on so the they beach, use yeah. this deep focus shot. It's a famous shot that they use in movies, as you know, Brian, but the two times, two or three times I can remember it are in one in Jaws when you basically, Roy Scheider is sitting on the beach and they're all being encouraged into the water. And there's been rumours that this shark, is it the shark? Is it not the shark? Who's being responsible for the killings? And then the, the little boy is absolutely eaten alive. Poor little Kintner boy. And the camera goes, it's a deep reverse pull focus or something on Scheider. And it makes this sense of almost sickeningly oppressive feeling in your stomach. You feel you're being squashed. You feel everything is being pulled in in your head and you're going, oh! And that's the way his head feels as he sees this unfurl. The other one that that I remember from was in Goodfellas when um, when when um, Jimmy Conway meets uh, with Ray Liotta's character, and Jimmy knows that Ray that that Jimmy no or sorry Ray Liotta knows that De Niro wants to kill him. Mm. And they're meeting in the coffee and, shop, and, and the sideways deep deep focus, deep deep pull reverse focus, whatever it's called, gets that sense of of anxiety. Yeah, you, you can everything. It's like tunnel squashed, vision. Like yeah, yeah, yeah it's everything's squashed. kind of coming in on top of it. So 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 there was that, and then there was other tricks. 
tricks used like everybody remembers who knows Joe's remembers the little, the little head bobbing in the boat beneath the uh, thing and, and the way it always shocks you because it happens offbeat mm. and it doesn't ha- it's not like a hammer horror where it goes you're going to get the shock now and here it is too it ha- happens when you least expect it and it still gives you the jolt and apparently that was shot in one of their swimming pools in post-production genius again you're just going this guy just has a vision in his head and he goes I can shoot it in a swimming pool it's ingenuity, isn't it's it? Ingenuity. It's, it's, it's that thing of like you know uh, the lack of the lack of preparation or the lack of resources. It's jazz almost in a way. Yeah. It's the idea of like even how even how that beat. I mean, it's syncopated. Like it's not on the beat. Yeah. Like, but he knows what he's doing. Yeah. Oh no. He's, yeah. He's, completely. He's, he's, a, he's a cinephile like Quentin Tarantino or all these guys. They were the first real cinephiles. Um, to get behind people, the camera, yeah, to people who were geeks about movies, yeah, to get behind the camera, and you know that Scorsese is just—he watches every film. He's yeah. like Tarantino; he loves movies. I've heard I've heard Scorsese talk about the worst movies and go, you know, I think that's quite a good movie. I you can pull a, something I out. I think of there's it. a lot of nice things in that. And you know, you know, look at Roger Corman. Okay, I mean, it's a little bit hooky, kooky, quacky, wacky, wacky. But you know, I think he's got—I think he's going to get something there. And you go, Roger Corman. Hold on, I get it. I mean, I know he was a trailblazer, but like, it's literally just slosh. Yeah, come on, wallop. It's just throwing it at the wall. It's literally just—you know—it's—it's complete messing. Give me your. What is your favorite scene in Jaws? Favorite scene is my favorite scene is when the movie begins, and it's not the beginning of the movie. It's my favourite scene. It's when the movie begins. It's when, uh, it's when Richard Dreyfus tries to teach Roy Scheider how to do the knot on the boat. He's teaching him how to do a knot, and Scheider can't get the knot. It's a it's a special uh, sailor's knot. And at the same time, Robert Shaw has the line in the sea. Oh my god! And yeah. Dreyfus is messing around. And he's already told Scheider how to do this knot, but he's like, Scheider's messing around. He can't get the knot. And he goes, how about this? No, it doesn't work. And he tries it again. So you see him fiddling with the rope in his hand and he's doing the knot. He's trying to over and in, under, over and under. Meanwhile, you hear the, do you see that you see the line, the fishing line with Robert Shaw and it just goes, tick, 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 tick. You see Shaw's eyes. He knows there's something happening. Something's happening. Tick, 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 tick. Back to Dreyfus, just messing around with cards on the deck. Back to Scheider trying to do the knot. He looks over. Back to Dreyfus. Back to Shaw. Eyes in the water. Back to Scheider. He gets the knot and he goes, got it! And you hear the the, the line go, (laughs) and you know then this is the beginning of the roller coaster that is Jars. It's the beginning. And I love the bits as well where the the barrels go down mm. and he puts the barrels on the shark and then they go yes, never, no, no one's he's come up with a barrel no he stays down with two barrels comes up with two barrels nobody ever got with three barrels he comes up with three toes down with three <laughs> barrels three barrels and you're just your hand your, your arm still now oh, no, when, yeah. I think, when I talk about it the, the, the hair stand up on my arm because he's Spielberg is playing with you like a violin concerto you yeah. know, he's just playing you he's playing you the whole time it's the little look it's the little look from Shaw when he just like bite, takes a bite the thing and he just looks over and it's 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 so subtle like it's just a little like glance yeah, at it and you can see in the room, first of all it's great performance is yeah. fine but whoever's in the room in the edit suite saw that, that. Day, saw that and it's, you know it's Spielberg and his editor but it's got to be Spielberg going we go to there we go to him we go to him and then 
You know it's that because there's loads of there's loads of points in the movie that that happens, and you know it's the one man behind it, and it's him. And then you watch, you go, well, maybe it was a fluke. Maybe all these things came together. And you watch ET's Close Encounters of the. I don't think know. so, though. No? I don't think so. No, I, I don't. Yeah. I don't. I don't buy that it's a fluke. Like, I oh think yeah, sorry, it's not a fluke. No, yeah, that's what yep. I'm saying. Yeah, I don't buy that it's a fluke. I, I do think it's one of those things that you have somebody who knows what they're doing that has this vision and is able to execute it mm. it's funny though like he's never I don't know like you look at his later work I mean obviously Schindler's List was brilliant and Jurassic Park was brilliant but you can tell that like you know he has lost he has lost it a mm. bit hasn't he mm. like I think that's fair to say yeah yeah definitely and I, and I, I don't I don't I don't discredit him because no. of it like well, no one can no one can operate at that level of efficiency and excellency it's just impossible nah, yeah you're right I mean you know I, I, this is a different argument though Brian mm. I mean like you know like you can go to all areas of life like I, I'm always on about these snooker players so how come Steve Davis and Stephen Hendry couldn't win a snooker world championship after the age of 30 uh, how come but Ronnie O'Sullivan is still oh, he's an exception he's a total outlier he really is yeah, he's a total true, outlier yeah. a total outlier um, and the how come, like, you know, how come Paul McCartney, John Lennon, you know, John mm. Lennon died at 40. Yeah. But it's as if, for a lot of people, his career had been over for 10 years. Yeah, I mean, yeah. like, even the Plastic Ono band stuff, like, it was just wasn't well, going you know, anywhere. Yeah. You know, I love double fantasy and all yeah, that sort yeah. of stuff. But, like, there's no, it's not, like, in the same level of, of no, creativity. God, no. So you kind of wonder, you know, Bowie, even. You know what I mean, Bowie. For me, like in in, I don't know that much about him, but Bowie after like you know eighty three or eighty four, was there that much left? You know, really. And what age is he there? He's not that old. Mm. And you're just kind of going. You know, he did. He he lived all through his late eighties, the nineties, the two thousands, and you're kind of going. Did he make anything there that yeah, people talked about? Did he make about? anything that people talked about really? And you're kind of going. Is there a place where musical and maybe. Although you've got to ask, you've got to say that there are some filmmakers, you know, John Huston and all these people and, and John Ford and um, uh, uh, so filmmaker Clint Eastwood. Yeah. Clint Eastwood. That would be a still name. Still cranking out. Oh, yeah. still cranking. Like I loved um, Gran Torino and yeah. Mule, the, pure, the Mule. The, the mule, mule. Yeah, I thought the Mule I was, the mule. yeah, yeah, no, it was good. I just felt that it was very kind of, what's the word? You could tell he was enjoying himself too sure. much. But, but, again, but, but I still, he still has something. Yeah, oh no, com- completely. Like, he's know? still got the presence. And by the time he made Unforgiven as well, he was getting old. And Jesus. Unforgiven is one of the greatest westerns I think ever made. Completely agree. Unbelievable. Completely agree. Um, shot women and children. I just I shot everything that moved. I need to kill you, little Bill. You son of a bitch. <laughs> God, Gene Hackman is just the best. He's like, I, yeah, you even think of like Gene Hackman. Like, it's, yeah. Okay, we are out of time. I'm going to leave it there. Thank yeah. you very much. You're welcome. I have a few people to thank before I finish up this episode. Uh, first and foremost, I have to thank Shauna O'Reilly, who's a buddy of mine. Uh, she works as a producer on the Ian Dempsey Breakfast Show. Uh, she was good enough to uh, put me in contact with Mario Rosenstock. Obviously, thanks to Mario Rosenstock for coming on and picking Jaws. What a feckin' film. What a choice as well. I have to thank the uh, staff in Marconi House as well. We actually recorded that episode in Marconi House and they were good enough to give us a studio and give us access to the files afterwards. So really do appreciate that. I have to thank Owen Renane, Charlotte Reed, and Fiona Flynn for editing, recording and production. Really do appreciate their time and efforts there. And last but by no means least, thanks to you for listening. 
If you like this episode, if you like the show, I would very much appreciate it. If you liked and subscribed on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, if you really, really liked it and you're really sound, possibly even leave us a review as well. Definitely do appreciate those. Thanks for listening.